Hi, I'm Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, a fast-paced half-hour video cast dedicated to helping you, entrepreneurs, executives, business owners, founders, realize your wealth, dreams of wealth and freedom. Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by Zell Law, a law firm located in Reston, Virginia, and Savannah, Georgia, with clients all across the country. If you'd like to know more about us and our services, visit us on the web at zellaw.com. Today, we're going to have a special topic, and then we're going to have a special guest. And our first special topic today is continuing the discussion of choice of entity when you're forming a business. And that choice of entity really depends on what you're going to be doing and how you're going to be doing it. Today, we're going to talk about partnerships and how they work. What is a partnership and what kinds of partnerships are there under the various state laws? Well, the most basic example of a partnership is a general partnership. I walk up to you on the street. I, I know you. I shake your hand and I say, partner, let's be partners. Let's go invest in that real estate venture down the street. Or let's go ahead and open up a hot dog stand here on the side of the street and we shake hands and we agree to be partners and then we start operating as a partnership. That's how simple it is to create a general partnership. But watch out for general partnerships. They're really a thing of the past. We don't use them very much today and I'll tell you why in a second. Then there's the limited partnership or LP. In a limited partnership by state law, you almost always have to have one general partner referred to as a GP and one or more limited partners. So in Texas, for example, when we set up entities, we use limited partnerships pretty frequently. We'll have a general partner, and we may have one. We may have 50 limited partners in the limited partnership that we're setting up. There's also something called a limited liability partnership, which became extremely popular in the wake of the Enron debacle that put away one of the greatest accounting firms ever to be on earth, and that was Arthur Anderson and Company. I started my career at Arthur Anderson in 1980, and I was there for a while, and I still maintain contact with some of my former colleagues at Arthur Anderson, but it was put out of business because it was essentially a general partnership among all of its partners around the United States and around the world. And several of the partners in the Houston office were involved in the Enron crisis that led to the massive liability and massive failure of Enron, which ultimately led to the demise of the great Arthur Anderson accounting firm. So these LLPs are limited liability partnerships, and they're usually used by professionals, accountants, lawyers, sometimes doctors, although in some states it's not permitted. And the LLP basically says that my liability as a partner professional in that firm is limited to my own negligence and my own torts, my, the, the bad acts that I've committed. But the partnership debts, I may have a pro rata responsibility for based on my ownership of the partnership. But I'm not liable for my partner's malpractice or bad things that they may have done. 
Then we've got the limited liability limited partnership, which is also a relatively new creature of statute, and it's not found in all of the states, but it operates somewhat like a limited partnership. However, the key distinction is that you can limit the liability for a general partner in an LLLP if an election is filed and other requirements are met. So let's talk about general partnerships. I mentioned you need to be careful and you need to be cautious if you're forming a general partnership. And a lot of families enter into general partnership arrangements not really understanding what they're getting into. A partner in a general partnership is personally liable for all business debts incurred by the partnership, even if they didn't agree to be liable for it. It basically refers to the concept of joint and several liability, which means that even though you were, say, a 50% partner with your brother or your cousin in a partnership, and your brother or your cousin go out and incur a debt, you're liable for the whole debt if it's in the name of the partnership. Any individual partner in a general partnership generally can bind the entity to a contract or a transaction. So it's risky to get involved in a general partnership. How are partnerships taxed? Well, they're basically pass-through entities, meaning that revenue minus expenses and certain other items, such as credits and charitable deductions, are passed through to the partners on a Schedule K-1 that's attached to the partnership return which is referred to as Form 1065. So usually, with many, with very few exceptions, some state law exceptions, partnerships do not pay tax on their income. And as I mentioned, income, deductions, credits, and losses pass through to the owners, but then the question is, can the owners use all of those losses that are passed through to them? There are three basic limitations that we always point to. One is limited to your basis in the partnership, which equals the amounts that you contributed to the partnership, plus whatever debts are allocated to you under the debt allocation rules in the partnership provisions of the tax code. There's also an, a risk known as at risk. Are you really personally liable for this debt that the partnership incurred? And then there are some exceptions to that. If you're not able to satisfy these two limitations, you can't claim the loss, and the loss is suspended and carried forward. In 1986, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 introduced the passive loss rules under Code Section 469 of the Internal Revenue Code, and that further limits your ability to claim losses currently and offset them against other income, like your compensation income that you generate. These passive loss rules are very complex and really would involve an entire separate presentation um, that might be twice as long as this presentation is today. Now let's talk about liability and partnerships. Again, in a general partnership and in a limited partnership, the general partner is personally liable for the debts of the partnership. So in many cases, in virtually all cases that I can think of, you want to have a limited liability entity serving as the general partner or general partners of a general partnership 
or limited partnership. In that event, you might use a corporation or a limited liability company, or in some cases, you might use what we refer to as an irrevocable trust that could serve as the general partner and limit the liability of the entity uh, to basically the corporate general partner or LLC and not expose your personal assets. Let me give you an example. Your partner, Bill, goes out, signs up with the local bank, takes out a high interest rate loan in the name of the partnership, proves that he's a general partner, and the bank lends him the money without your knowledge or your consent. If the partnership is a general partnership, you're fully liable for the loan. Again, can't emphasize enough, partnerships, sole proprietorships, any business should get commercial insurance, business insurance, errors and omissions insurance, general liability insurance, workers' compensation insurance if you've got employees, umbrella insurance if it's available, and other types of insurance, including cybersecurity risk insurance, which is really important today. And then, of course, you want to enter into a very clearly written partnership agreement. But if I'm in your shoes, I would use an LLLP, a limited liability company, or a corporation if I were operating the business. Partnership agreements are really important to flesh out the liability, governance, and other aspects of running the business. It allows you to allocate profits and losses and cash flow. It allows you to restrict the transfer of the interests. And it deals with such situations as retirement or death or disability or the withdrawal of a partnership. Without an agreement, you're subject to the statute in the state in which you operate. For general partnerships, those statutes are commonly known as the Uniform Partnership Act or the Revised Partnership Act. For, for limited partnerships, it's known as the ULPA or the Uniform Limited Partnership Act or Revised Uniform Limited Partnership Act. In California, for example, these statutes would restrict you from adding a new member or new partner to the partnership without unanimous consent of all of the partners. You may not want to restrict the entity that much. What is it that a partnership cannot do? Well, a partnership cannot avoid personal liability for business debts, even though it says that you are limited to the liability that you might have in the partnership if it's a general partnership. And general partners can't limit their liability, but they can certainly seek contribution from other general partners or other partners that they're working with. A partnership agreement also is not allowed to restrict a partner's rights to inspect the books and records of the business. And you cannot limit the rights of third parties in relationship to the partnership. For, for example, if in the example I used before where Bill wanted to enter into this borrowing arrangement with a third party on behalf of the partnership, the third party has apparent, knows that Bill has authority, apparent authority to act on behalf of the partnership. So the partnership agreement can't restrict that third party's right to enter into that agreement with Bill because the third party doesn't know about it. So unless the third party is actually bound to this agreement, they're not bound by your partnership agreement that limits your liability to the partnership and therefore the creditors of the partnership. 
you also, in a, in a fiduciary situation, you cannot l- eliminate or weaken the fiduciary duties that are owed by each partner to the other. The duties of loyalty, the duties of care, the duties of prudence, the duties to administrate the administer the partner properly, partnership properly. If you've got questions on how to set up a partnership of whatever type, let us know. Give us a call at our phone number at 571-203-ZELL or look at us, look us up on the web and send us an email at zelllaw.com. I'm Wayne Zell. You've been watching Blueprint for Wealth, the video cast that hopefully is helping you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. Stay tuned for our special guest. Welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth with my special guest, Lou Parker. Welcome to the show, Lou. Well, I'm glad to be here. Lou Parker is a Renaissance man. He speaks many languages, but French is his most proficient outside of English, and he's also a techpreneur. So, Lou, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your experience in technology as an entrepreneur and a little bit of your background. Where did you start doing technology and when did you start it and how did you come about being an entrepreneur in the first place? Well, I kind of migrated into it uh, after having become, after I was involved in technology uh, running Hazelton Laboratories. We were doing uh, laboratory work for the NIH. We sold Hazelton and I came out and my alternatives were to move somewhere I didn't want to move or to take some technology and start myself. So I chose the latter. Okay. What and, kind of technology were you doing? Uh, we actually took, with the permission of Corning, who had bought Hazelton, we took uh, technology on veterinary diagnostics hmm. and started a company uh, to uh, provide high-speed diagnostics for the dairy industry. Developed two assays, one for the uh, diagnosis of Staph aureus in milk, which was a big problem uh, for the dairy industry. Actually, a larger stream of milk samples, uh, samples than human blood samples. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I would say you were a scientist, or you I are. I was a scientist. working with a scientist organization okay. to do it, and then we also developed a rapid assay for antibiotics in milk because camel. Uh, Sick cows are frequently treated with antibiotics. I see. So, and then if you get too much in the milk, you have to throw the milk away. So we started a company for that, and it didn't work very well. The science was not spot on, and um, so we sold that company out. And then I came uh, later on and uh, started, uh, I went to work for a company in the human medical field, Kirshner Kirshner Medical. Okay. And we were doing human orthopedics. Okay. And um, so that's a big shift. Oh, I I went from, you know, science of chemistry and biology. uh, To spine stuff. Well, actually, yeah, spine, but also mostly hips, knees, and shoulders. Okay. We We were replacing human hips, knees, and shoulders. And then we sold that company, and I had, again, the choice to go somewhere I didn't want to go. And uh, <laughs> came back to Loudoun County and figured, okay, I'll just make my life doing my winery. I had established a winery in 79, many years ago, the first in Loudoun County, one of the first in the Back when the Extension Service and the USDA told me I was crazy to try to grow commercial grapes in Virginia. I'd like to focus on that because I think that... 
That is probably not the source of your wealth today, but it's the source of your love and your passion, and you're really good at it. Willowcroft Winery yes. is is the oldest winery in Northern Virginia, isn't it? In Loudoun County. Loudoun yeah. County. And one of the oldest in the state. I think we're currently the fifth oldest in the state of Virginia. Now there's about 300. It's amazing. And there's 50 in Loudoun County alone. So we were... We were the pioneers uh, for the industry. and uh, When did you start it? We actually bought a farm in 79 uh, out in Loudoun County, southwest of Leesburg, mm -hmm. for my daughters who were 4-H kids. Mm -hmm. and we wanted a farm so the daughters could raise 4-H animals. And uh, it was a small, high, rocky farm. And I'm saying there's no way you can farm for profit, but I have to have a high-value high crop. And people were beginning to talk about the possibility of growing European wine grapes in the eastern United States. And so what grapes do you grow? We grow, we grow uh, uh, th uh, 12 varieties. Most of them are European Vitus vinifera varieties, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc Chardonnay, all those, all those European grapes that are acknowledged to make the finest wines are European Vitus vinifera. Okay. And people were just saying it might be possible then, and so we gave it a try. And you've won a bunch of awards. Oh over yeah, the years. we're well over four or five hundred medals, and we have wow. uh, we have the double gold from the San Francisco Chronicle competition this last year for one of our wines. This past year, so we've learned how to do it. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. We've learned how to. I've been to the winery, and I suggest that all of our listeners go visit you before you decide not to do it anymore. It's a great winery. Lou produces great wine at Willowcroft. And if any of you are interested in learning about winemaking and really the ins and outs of it, particularly in Loudoun County, you should go visit them at Willowcroft. Now, I've also been involved with many other startups, and I know that you have too. And one startup in particular, probably the most successful that I'm aware of, was K2. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in startups and then a little bit about the K2 experience? We, we started, when I got back here from to, to Loudoun County from Kirshner Medical, my son-in-law, who's an entrepreneur genetically, mm -hmm. uh, wanted to start a company in the human spine business. And he, had, he knew uh, he had a surgeon that had the idea, and he said, how do I do this? So I joined him and started a company uh, for um, treating uh, uh, human spines. What do they do? I mean, what uh, did that, they do? That company was before K2. Okay. Um, it was called American Osteomedics, and we were using percutaneous through-the-skin trocars to put human bone cement into the middle of your vertebral body. It was an enormously successful technology for women, for example, that have uh, osteoporosis. Calcium deficiencies and their, in osteoporosis. their vertebral right. bodies were just collapsing, causing terrible pain, but we were able to fix that. And we sold that company within three years, and, uh, and then uh, he wanted to start again, so we started again with another company, which uh, we called K2M. And, uh, and whatever they, happened to K2M? K2M went from a little company with a few of us uh, founders were involved, not only ourselves, but, uh, but spine surgeons. Mm -hmm. We had the retired chief uh, spine surgeon from Hopkins as our chief medical officer. And we put together um, a portfolio to handle specifically a dramatically uh, deformed spines, mm -hmm. spinal curvature. And we came the 
became the the leader in that area of spine scoliosis scoliosis and uh, related uh, spine problems and, sure. and went on to uh, sell the company and, uh, and we did quite public, well went, we well went well with we did well with that and we, then we went to the company we sold it to uh, they took it public and then the public company was sold to Stryker a couple of years ago for I remember a, for a that. lot of money yeah, yeah. well that's yeah. great that's yeah. great what are the challenges that listeners should be aware of that entrepreneurs face when they're starting up a business? In other words, what is the greatest challenge that you've faced? You have to have a person that understands the market first. I think the first the most critical thing for starting a company is to understand the market. And even with that, there's a lot of risk, of course. Uh, there's technical risk with a lot of startups. So we had a a big technical risk for our, our spine company and we're able to overcome it and you've got to have uh, you have to be able to provide the leadership that knows how to commercialize technology you see a lot of people that have a very very strong uh, technical ideas but crossing that bridge to commercialization is a different set of skills and what would you say the keys to success are for an entrepreneur to cross that bridge um, getting the right people is the key to success in almost any enterprise. Getting the right people on the bus and getting them in the right seats. Taking a page out of uh, the, the uh, Good to Great book from Jim Collins, he says that get the right people in the right seats. So K2M was a massive success, and you had a lot, a lot of other successes, but uh, were there some failures too? Well, uh, as I told you, the uh, ProScience Corporation that did the veterinary diagnostics, th that was not successful. Why? What, uh, what caused uh, it to be unsuccessful? It had to do with, uh, at that time, and this is many years ago, you know, for example, we're into it. Everybody in the United States understands today, because of the pandemic, the difference between antigen testing and antibody testing. Okay. And the test we were For the using, listener who doesn't understand, what's the difference? Well, the antibodies are secreted by the human immune system as okay. defense against the antigen. Okay. And uh, we were using or tried to commercialize at that time an antibody test, and it wasn't adequately diagnosing the cattle's milk, the cow's milk, for the mm -hmm. presence of the antigen. So the technology didn't work in that particular case. I actually uh, had a failure in the startup that I worked in uh, many, many years ago, I, I actually left my practice of law, joined the startup, and it, it didn't succeed, but I learned a lot in the process. So the lessons that we've learned from this are get good management, get good people around you in the right spots, and funding these vehicles is a challenge too, correct? Yes, you know, finding funding is, is always a challenge. Uh, and uh, getting the right backers is critical. I have uh, been invested in one or two arrangements where the investors were a, a problem. So getting the right investors that share your vision that you can work with, uh, that uh, will... Who believe in you. Who believe in it and will see the company through, that's critical. I've seen situations where the investors aren't willing to stick with the original founders for whatever reason because they want to monetize the technology faster or, or whatever. But I'm seeing a lot of money flowing from private equity into startup businesses at crazy valuations these days. There's all sorts of investment going on and uh, because uh, people have got, there's a lot of cash lying, on the, lying in bank accounts now and people are looking for a way to put it to work. 
do you think that cash should be deployed into things that would be considered public investments or stocks today? In other words, where should people put their money? I don't know the answer to that. That's, a good, that's a good <laughs> answer. That's a question somebody I, smarter than I has the, the concern that you and I have talked about privately, about what's happening in the economy, how do you think COVID has affected the way we live and operate? It's almost impossible to predict what will happen from the changes that have been brought about by COVID, uh, the changes in human behavior, the changes in the way people uh, behave and look at the markets, the human interaction. It's a very different time, and I can't predict. It's certainly, um, I'm not a youngster, and it's certainly different than anything I've ever seen. Where do you think we're headed from here? Well, I personally think we have to be aware of, of, of extremely high inflation. I mean, type of inflation that... Hyperinflation. Hyperinflation. And we, we're not immune from inflation like Venezuela or the Weimar Republic or France after World War II. We're not immune from that. And wow. I think we've got to watch for that possibility. And, uh, and it's how, do you, how do you uh, protect against something like well, that? Well, hold assets that survive that type of thing would be my would be what I'm trying to do. I'm certainly not going to get rid of things like land or... Real estate or is, a, or, is, a, yeah. is an important investment yeah, these yeah. days. Yes, I think so. Lou, if there's one piece of advice that you could give a young entrepreneur today as we end our interview, what would that be? And I'm talking with Lou Parker, who's the founder of Willowcroft Vineyards Winery in Loudoun County. And by the way, everybody, go visit this place. It's a beautiful, bucolic location located off of uh, Route 7 and a lovely place to to visit. But what piece of advice would you give an aspiring young entrepreneur who's trying to grow his or her business today? Oh, certainly try to understand and predict the markets. Um, and that's very, very challenging today because technology and markets are moving so quickly, much more quickly than I've ever seen in the past. Understanding the markets and potential markets for what you're going to provide to the markets is the most critical thing you need to do. Lou Parker, thanks for your advice and thanks for your friendship. And thanks for appearing on Blueprint for Wealth videocast today. Please join us next time for a special topic and a very special guest on Blueprint for Wealth.